trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Oh, yeah. I am shoveling truth and light in every direction on a daily basis. Well, Monday through Friday. Certain holidays excluded. Anyway, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. Man, if there was a time where people need to step outside of the narrative and start questioning what they're being told, this, my friend, is that time. And uh, I want to welcome, actually, I want to thank our sponsors. I don't think I have anybody new to welcome today, but I do have some that I want to thank. They include Monticello College. You want to talk about an education for our time? Yep, MonticelloCollege.org. Got a link in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. You can check them out for yourself. Lifesavingfood.com. Now, this is the this is part of the ReadyWise food storage program, but wow, have you got some things to choose from here in terms of, you know, if you, if you just need 72 hours worth, if you need a week's worth, if you need a month's worth, great opportunity to stock up on the things that you would want to have in the event that, uh, I don't know, the world got a little topsy-turvy. Not that that could ever happen, but, you know, just in case. also want to thank Pure Light, the most amazing light bulbs you will ever encounter. Pure-light.com is their website. HSLammo.com. I saw yesterday on Facebook that they just had uh, a fresh shipment of ammo ready to uh, to go out. You can visit their website to find out more. And last but not least, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home mortgage. So I had a conversation with a friend last night who is a nurse. And as you might guess, we talked a lot about, you know, the ongoing uh, resurgence of COVID, the the Delta variant. And now what do we have? The Lambda variant. And, you know, I understand that not everybody's going to agree with this, and, and I'm okay with that. But so much of what we have seen happen in reaction to the COVID pandemic has has left me with with the the very uh, the, this this belief stuck in my head that that this is just an opportunity for people who want to consolidate power to go nuts and it's not to say that you know there's there's not a virus out there no i think there there is and i think that uh, i think that for some people it poses a pretty significant risk for most people, and I'm talking 99% of the people who contract it, it may cause them to be ill, there might be some inconvenience, but most people get over it. And I, by the way, I'm pretty sure that I had it back in October. But this push for, well, we've got to get vaccinated, I mean, <clears throat> for crying out loud, uh, Mitch McConnell, Senate Minority Leader, yesterday was saying, people, if we don't get these vaccination numbers up, well, we're going to have to bring back the lockdowns. And this concerns me because it it sounds like, uh, well, that sounds like a threat. And frankly, I don't know that (laughs) I don't know that uh, everybody's going to go along with it. You know, a lot of people did when there was uncertainty. I don't know that to the people who saw their lives or their livelihoods either threatened or, in fact, destroyed because they were deemed unessential by people like Mitch McConnell or those who have that same mentality. You know, I don't think they're going to go along with this. 
So what then? Is this the conflict that we're being herded into? Well, we had to do something. Look, they, 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 were, they were starting to violently resist. I don't know. I feel like our, our uh, April 19th, 1775 moment at Concord and Lexington is, uh, is fast approaching. And I don't say that with any sense of it. It's a good thing. I'm just like, why can't people leave well enough alone? Why can't we learn that the experts, the, the politicians, the ones who were calling the shots, you have to do what we say. This is to protect you. They were wrong about so much. None of them can admit, can admit it, of course. And, of course, their enablers in the media don't really like to talk about that either. But it seems that it's all based in, well, we just we need this power. We need power. You've got to give us power. You've got to give us control. So I guess that makes me somewhat of an inflexible ideologue. Because for me, simply embracing the new normal is not an option. And it's because I understand what that entails. And it entails giving up what remains of my personal autonomy, including the sanctity of my own body and being able to make decisions for myself as to whether or not I will, you know, uh, accept this vaccine or not. It means restrictions on how and when I can support my family. It means restrictions on who I can associate with, where I can go. And by the way, signs are going up. I mean, it's it's already happening. Um, saw a picture from the Vancouver, British Columbia airport yesterday. Big, clear sign in English and in French as well. Unvaccinated persons, you know, queue up over here. Vaccinated persons over here. Congratulations, folks. Segregation is back, but it's cloaked in a lab coat. So, uh, you know, apparently it's a good thing. I don't know. I think we need to resist the new normal that's being foisted on us. Got a great article here from Frank Ferretti from uh, Spiked Online. Now, keep in mind, he is writing from the UK. But what he has to say about why we should resist the new normal absolutely rings true. And it comes down to, do you really want to live your life forever in the shadow of COVID? In other words, anytime someone gets a feeling that, well, we need to flex a little bit and keep the people under control, they're going to invoke COVID. They're going to invoke a new variant, a new, a new catastrophe, a new danger. It doesn't end. They're not going to put that power back down. They're not going to relinquish their control, not even for a little bit. Frank Ferretti says, time and again, you hear politicians, pundits, and experts hold forth about the new normal. And although they rarely say exactly what it is, the message is clear. The way we live and work in the post-COVID world will be very different to how we lived and worked in the pre-COVID world. He says, there are numerous versions of the new normal. For example, the work one entails changed working patterns. With many people expected to continue working from home. And the environmental one entails uh, reduced international travel, lower levels of consumption. And the education one entails the replacement, in part, of old-fashioned face-to-face teaching with online teaching. In fact, he says it can often seem that the new normal is a way for certain sections of society to advance their pre-existing visions of how things ought to be. For some economists, for example, the new normal means the restructuring of capitalism. One World Bank blog asserts that multinationals will have to take greater responsibility for the environment 
and adopt an increased focus on sustainability and green initiatives. Decarbonization here is projected as a product of the new normal. Yeah, that doesn't sound opportunistic at all, does it? He says this is an outlook advocated by the globalist oligarchs of the World Economic Forum in the shape of its so-called Great Reset. By the way, that's their words. They're the ones who call it the Great Reset. This is the WEF's attempt to put a positive spin on the new normal. And it claims the application of new technology under the benevolent guidance of technocratic experts will create a more just world. Now, the political new normal shares some aspects with the World Economic Forum's vision. Like the WEF, those arguing for a new normal politics want to subordinate democratic decision-making to technocratic expertise. In particular, they believe that public health experts should have a far greater say in the management of society. By the way, just to to put that into uh, perspective, okay, what's wrong with public health experts having a greater say in the management of society? After all, it's about the public health. Yeah, and a couple of days ago, the uh, mayor of Salt Lake City, Utah, declared systemic racism a public health concern or public health problem. So, yeah, there's there's nothing that can't fall under that rubric of public health. Anything a politician wants, well, you know, this is a matter of public health. This is how they're going to go about it. As Frank Ferretti points out, though, this technocratic vision lacks even the technological optimism of the Great Reset. Instead, public health experts see the new normal as a way to continue the restrictions and public health management of the last 18 months. From their standpoint, it's not humans determining the future of society, but a virus. And here perhaps we approach what lies at the heart of those various visions of the new normal, and that is a tremendous fatalism. A virus is effectively dictating our futures for us. Public life has been reduced to little more than an exercise in public health, and the overarching objective of new normal life amounts to little more than avoiding risk, or as it used to be known, tempting fate, and trying to stay safe. Which brings us to the dominant themes of the new normal script, which are human passivity and powerlessness. Gee, that would seem to work really well for those who want to be in charge, wouldn't it? We can just convince everybody to be passive, powerless, wait for your instructions, sit, sit, stay. Okay, now you can put your mask back on. Yeah, I'm not I'm not ready to embrace that and I hope you aren't either. We'll come back to this in just a few moments. Stay with us. This is the Brian Hyde show. This is the Brian Hyde show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'll admit it, I'm on kind of a tear today. It's probably because of my conversation with a friend of mine who works within the medical field. And we just were comparing notes about, you know, what we know, what we don't know, what we want to understand better about the vaccine, about COVID, and about the new normal. Now, he and I are both pretty, uh, we're we're pretty freedom-minded guys. That's one of the things that, uh, that's one of the reasons why we're friends. But it's it's pretty chilling what both of us see on the horizon, this push for this new normal. And, and it's a new normal, which is, as Frank Ferretti from uh, Spiked Online points out, is based in human passivity and powerlessness. 
In fact, Frank Ferretti says both of these qualities are continually promoted by the new normal advocates. For example, the Guardian's report on its favorite risk-adverse society, New Zealand, is titled No Return to Normal Expected in Post-Pandemic New Zealand. And locals say that's fine. Overall, it says New Zealanders' feelings toward COVID-19 were passive. Almost half, or 44%, felt neutral emotions around COVID-19. And three-quarters felt the country was going in the right direction. Now, the passivity of New Zealanders in the face of COVID and the ensuing restrictions highlights a dramatic loss of agency. And if this report is accurate, it suggests that New Zealanders are gripped by a powerful mood of fatalism. And they seem not to be alone across the West. It seems many are willing to accept that they can do no other. The virus is deciding their future for them. And Frank Ferretti says that marks a dangerous backward step for humanity. Humanity has, of course, long subjected the idea of destiny to a philosophical and scientific debate. The ancients often expressed a powerful belief in people's potential to exercise their will and shape their future. With the ascendancy of the Enlightenment and the commanding influence of science and knowledge, belief in the creative and transformative potential of humanity flourished. When U.S. President Franklin Roosevelt stated in 1939, men are not prisoners of fate, but only prisoners of their own minds. He echoed the belief that people possessed the power to make their own way in the world. Now that Roosevelt could express such a positive view of the human condition in the dark days of 1939 indicates an admirable refusal to defer to fate. The representation of humanity in the West, he says, today is far less flattering. Human powerlessness and vulnerability are emphasized in virtually every cultural domain. People are divested of the capacity to make conscious decisions about their lives. Even the idea that human beings are capable of reasoning, judging, and acting for themselves has given way to the dogma that the people lack the moral and intellectual resources to deal with a crisis, in this case a pandemic. This tendency to depict humanity as being at the permanent mercy of events beyond its control, be they viruses or climate change, resembles the ancient practice of evoking fate as a terrifying and unstoppable force. Yet though many ancients were in awe of fate, they still explored the possibility that individuals might be able to influence their future. The Russians, for instance, worshipped the goddess Fortuna, giving her great power over human affairs. But they still believed that her influence could be contained and even overcome by people of true virtue. As the saying goes, fortune favors the brave. Now, the conviction that the power of fortune could be limited through human effort and will is one of the most important legacies of the humanist tradition, a tradition that revived during the Renaissance and flourished during the Enlightenment. Indeed, this tradition affirmed the belief that in certain circumstances, humanity could gain freedom from necessity and influence its own future. But Frank Ferretti says that was then. Today, the optimistic belief in humankind's ability to subdue the challenges it faces has been displaced by a powerful mood of fatalism. However, he says, we do not have to accept the dogma of the new normal. The old normal encouraged humanity to see itself as the subject and not the objects of history. We need to reappropriate the democratic and future-oriented spirit of the Enlightenment era. He says it's not up to experts sitting in their laboratories to decide what is and what is not normal. Through democratic debate, it's up to citizens to work out what kind of future they wish to inhabit. And so he says, beware the peddlers 
of the new normal. I have a link to this in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. you got a decision to make. I do as well. Now, I've pretty much made my decision. <laughs> and my decision is, hey, I will, uh, I will call the shots for what is uh, best for me and mine. Now, that's, of course, uh, you know, my kids who are old enough to be making these kind of decisions on their own, they get to make those decisions. My wife can make her own decisions on this. But we pretty much line up on a lot of this stuff. But I'm not about to allow some politician or some bureaucrat or some activist to take charge of my life. They don't know what I know about what my goals are, about what, uh, what brings me happiness, what brings me a sense of purpose and mission in life. They're the proverbial bureaucrat with a clipboard and the desire to go rule the world with this clipboard. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make the world do exactly what I think it should do. Not a good thing. So don't be fooled into, into giving up more of your personal autonomy for the sake of someone else saying, but, but, but danger... There is danger out there, and you and I have to be the ones who are are brave enough to weigh the risks and weigh the costs and the benefits and then decide what our course of action is going to be. That's not reckless. It's not murderous like some are saying. That's just part of being a free and independent human being. But, of course, we've been conditioned to view that kind of freedom as selfish, self-centered. How dare you? How dare you? That's collectivist thinking. I'm going to come down on the side of the individual every single time. Anything peaceful, it's fine. People should be able to do anything that's peaceful. But I don't buy into this rationale. Well, you're you're peacefully not taking the, the vaccine is killing other people. No, it's not. Why do you have to force? Why do you want to force me so badly? I wasn't made to to wear your saddle, so I'm certainly not going to let you stand astride me with your riding crop, whipping away, thinking that uh, you're going to send me in the direction of your choosing. You want to have a contest of wills? Let's do it. As Henry David Thoreau said, you know, I I was not uh, born to, how does he put it? I was not born to uh, to live under the state. The state, you know, wants to force him. I'm going to have to paraphrase it, but he says, let's have that contest. He goes, I will breathe free. Let's see who's the stronger. Of course, to some people, that's going to sound like a challenge. Okay, Hyde, we're going to bend you to our will. Well, good luck. Bring friends. Because <laughs> uh, my goal is not to force anybody to do anything. But if you have to resort to force, my friend, you've already lost the moral high ground. And without the moral high ground, you have nothing there's nothing you can take away from me that uh, that would, you know, leave me worse off. So, you know, do your worst, but understand, I don't want what you're offering. And I'm hoping that other people who likewise feel that way or who, who understand what's at stake here will take courage from that. I certainly take courage from the people who have the, the guts to stand up and the backbone to say no. So I have absolutely no problem with... Uh, with uh, trying to spread the contagion of uh, thinking for yourself, determining what is right for yourself. 
Some people think, oh, that just sounds like anarchy. If you're going to determine what's right, that's because you've been conditioned to think that anything not under the control of the state is by definition out of control. That's the creed of the statist. You should try looking at things through the lens of uh, liberty, through the lens of personal conscience, through the lens of private property rights and freedom of association. Yeah, it's, it's a very different uh, perspective. And I'll be so bold as to say it's a better perspective. So take the statist claptrap, go peddle it to somebody else, somebody who's a little more gullible. But uh, don't darken my doorstep with it. Thank you. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Quick shout out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Very happy to have her as one of our sponsors. I'm also very happy for what uh, she can do for you. If you are uh, looking to uh, purchase a home, particularly in the great state of Utah, Patriot Home Mortgage, of course, is an equal housing opportunity lender. And Heather Turner team at uh, Patriot Home Mortgage has the experience, the know-how, the clout to get you the loan that you need in a really timely fashion. From VA loans to traditional loans to reverse mortgages, they are the ones you're looking to work with because uh, time is of the essence. It's such a competitive real estate market. Homes go on the market and boom, the offers are coming, you know, with, with hey, we'll add another twenty, thirty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 to sweeten the pot. Um, you've really got to be on your toes in order to, to get the home of your dreams. Contact the Heather Turner team in St. George at 619 South Bluff Street. Call 435-703-4522. Her NMLS ID is 715-386. Well, let's talk for a moment about envy. Apparently, it's a very powerful tool for politicians. I mean, why else would they be pushing? Some of them are pushing for a uh, space race tax on a handful of billionaires. Yes, this has to do with, you know, uh, Richard Branson uh, launching to the edge of space here just a few days ago. Uh, Also, Jeff Bezos made the journey a couple of days ago. Wow. Why do people want to, well, how how dare they sit out there and flex? How dare they sit there and show off their wealth by by trying to get to space? And I guess this is, you know, the politics of envy is something that works. Politicians know well that if we can get people envious and stirred up, they'll pretty much fall in line with us. That's why I really like this article from, uh, this is from Charles C.W. Cook published in National Review. The headline gets right to the point. Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson owe you nothing. (laughs) He says, herewith, a friendly reminder that Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson owe you nothing. That's right. Nothing, nada, zip, zero, nil, bubkas. In the last two weeks, both Branson and Bezos have been flown into space by the private exploration companies they own. Since then... He says, I've read complaint after complaint about their endeavors. It's grotesque. It's selfish. It's narcissism. Why don't they fix the problems on Earth? 
Now, Charles C.W. Cook says, sure, they could do that if they want to, but if they don't, that's fine, too. The thing is, and this seems to be the part that far too many people seem to struggle with, it's their money. It's not your money, it's theirs, and you don't get a say in how they spend it. If Branson and Bezos want to build personal rockets that can take them up to the edge of space, they can. If they want to lie in a golden bath and drink champagne all day, they can. If they want to live in a tree and collect snakes in a barrel, that's fine too. They've made enormous amounts of money selling legal products and services that people want, and now they're spending some of that money on things they want themselves, all while revolutionizing the private space industry. That's not a flaw or a problem or a failure. It's how the system works and how the system should work. That Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos are extremely rich does not mean that they have an obligation to consider how you would use their property if you were in their position. You're not, and they don't. The Wall Street Journal's Christopher Mims suggests that why not solve problems here on Earth argument is is valid, but he says it's complicated by Musk pushing the entire auto industry towards zero emissions and Bezos creating a $10 billion climate fund. Charles C.W. Cook says, yeah, maybe that's all very nice, I'm sure. But the question is also complicated by the fact that its premise is flawed. Why? Because what other people legally do with their own resources is none of your dang business. Personally, he says, I happen to think that it's pretty great that a bunch of billionaires have decided to create an efficient private space market that will eventually be open to everyone. Now, he says, I also happen to think that the urge to explore is a noble one that should be celebrated. But if I didn't, do you know what that would mean? Nothing. <laughs> ah, just love common sense, especially when it comes in, in, in good power-packed, concentrated doses like that. Speaking of which, Ken McManigal, love this guy's work, strongly recommend that maybe you check him out. I I get uh, emails from everything-voluntary.com on the regular, and Kent is a regular contributor there. He had one about how things fail to work. Listen to this. How's this for some condensed wisdom? Kent McManigal says it seems many, if not most people, have hypotheses of how things work that depend on everyone being evil idiots, except when they have political power. In that case, they are necessary and society can't function without them. Mm-hmm. Sure. He says these people never seem to notice how completely irrational and delusional this hypothesis really is. And yet they'll lecture the rest of us to accept their diseased reality. Usually their main mistake is in defining every human interaction as politics when that's simply not the case. Only the unethical win-lose interactions are political. The rest aren't. And those political interactions aren't essential to society. In fact, they are inimical to it. They're the opposite of the social interactions. Politics is antisocial. So he asks, are you going to be schooled on how to live among others by people who imagine everything is political and that's not a bad thing? Ken McManigal says, I will not. Excellent. Excellent stuff. Moving on. Here's a good one for you. The ongoing corruption of our language. Now, this is one of the strongest indicators that someone is trying to gain control over what you say and what you think. John Stossel has a recent uh, column here that has some very good examples of what that looks like, as well as a reminder that speech is not violence. Stossel says, have you noticed how our language is changing? 
At a congressional hearing on birthing while black, nearly every politician used the words birthing people instead of women or mothers. Asked why, Shalanda Young, Joe President's uh, or five, President Joe Biden's budget director, said, "Our language needs to be more inclusive." Okay, then. Stossel says activists have also changed equality to equity and affirmative action to diversity. By the way, the Associated Press no longer uses the word mistress. It tells reporters to use companion, friend, or lover. Worse, certain speech is now labeled violence. Calling a transgender woman a man is an act of violence, says transgender actress Laverne Cox. Last week, the American Booksellers Association apologized for promoting a book on gender dysphoria after activists called it anti-trans. Now, the book is hardly anti-trans. The Economist and Times of London actually called it one of the best books of the year. But the Bookseller Association actually groveled calling promoting the book violent. Tim Sandifer of the Goldwater Institute says it's dangerous to call words violence. In John Stossel's new video, he says the only way humans can deal with one another is through language, discussion, debate. This is Tim Sandifer speaking. He says if we say that that's violence, then the only way for us to relate to one another is through power. Now, John Stossel pushes back. Well, you're white. Why should anybody listen to you about this? Sandifer says because what I say has or doesn't have merit on its own. A big problem within the social justice movement is the idea that people's mindset is controlled by their skin color. Now, that may be called anti-racism today, but it's just plain old-fashioned racism. Stossel says linguist John McWhorter, author of the forthcoming book, Woke Racism, adds it can be really hard for us to talk to each other because we don't know what the words we're using mean. McWhorter says the idea is whenever there are black and white disparities, we're supposed to call that phenomenon racism. It never fully holds together. Latinx is another term created by activists. And yet, says Sandifer, Latino originated as a reaction led by Hispanic people. They chose the word Latino or Latina. And now here's a largely white middle class movement of social justice activists telling other people, no, 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 you can't make distinctions in gender that way. Stossel asks, largely white? And the reply from Sandifer is, well, the social justice movement in general is a largely white, upper-middle-class, college-educated movement. You will find hardly anybody in the Hispanic community who prefers the term Latinx. He's right. Only 4% of Hispanics prefer the term. It's hard to keep up with what's okay and what's forbidden. Students at University of Illinois Chicago recently became upset because law professor Jason Kilborn included the N-word with only the first letter shown in an exam on employment discrimination. He'd used the exact same word in exams for 10 years. But this year, one student said she had to seek counsel immediately after the exam to calm myself. Wow. McWhorter says those students are lying. Why? Well... He says, because claiming that kind of victimhood gives them a sense of belonging, of togetherness, a sense that they're contributing to a struggle that their ancestors dealt with in a more concrete way. So the students, of course, demanded the professor be punished. He was. The law school suspended him in the name of social justice. Sanifer says social justice seeks to redistribute wealth and power between groups to suit what some political authority thinks is the right outcome. We'll come back to this in just a moment. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome back to the show. Please check out the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Not because I'm such an awesome writer or commentator, I'm not, but I do find some remarkably great content and share it with you on a daily basis. And if you want to take a deeper dive into any of these subjects, you will find the links in my daily show notes, and hopefully you can take it from there. You can, uh, you can see how far down the rabbit hole you would like to go. Sharing a piece here from John Stossel, speech is not violence. Isn't it telling that some people treat it as such? And in talking with uh, uh, Mr. Sandifer from the uh, Barry Goldwater Institute, I'm sorry, I'm missing, uh, I'm missing his first name here. Um, Tim Sandifer, thank you. There it is. John Stossel has a conversation with him about social justice and about, uh, about uh, victimhood. And apparently claiming victimhood is what gives some people a sense of belonging, according to Sandifer. The professor who had used just the N-word, this is Professor Jason Kilborn at University of Illinois, Chicago, with just the first letter shown in an exam on employment discrimination, rather, same exam he'd used for 10 years, but this time one student said, I had to have counsel immediately after the exam to calm myself. So, of course, students demanded the professor be punished. He was. The school suspended him in the name of social justice. Now, Sandifer says, social justice seeks to redistribute wealth and power between groups to suit what some political authority thinks is the right outcome. So John Stossel pushes back. Social justice just means it's time to pay attention to the minorities who never got justice. No, Sandifer responds. Social justice says we're going to reorganize how people live their lives, silence some groups that have been heard more often. Interesting. Stossel says it's like America's moving toward 1984, George Orwell's novel in which government controls people's thoughts by creating a new language, Newspeak. And according to McWhorter, the only way to stop it is to push back. Saying enlightened America needs to develop a backbone and start getting used to being called racist on Twitter. Just withstand it. Keep their voices out there. Make us understand what true justice is. That's pretty tough if you're the one who's being labeled as a racist. I mean, most people are going to recoil from that or at least go on the defense. Ah, no, I'm not. Let me prove to you that I'm not. Please, don't see me like that. And I don't mean to sound flip, you know, in, in, in suggesting this, but the people who would call you racist over just a simple disagreement or who would see racism in everything you think, say, and do that you can't possibly recognize. Why? Because you're racist. Okay, there's some nice circular logic for you. You're racist, but you can't know that because you're racist. Only I can see this with my superior powers of observation. Okay, right. I just want to assure you, you do not need their approval. You do not need their absolution or their acceptance. In fact, you should probably be concerned if, if they do agree with you, depending on how you know vehement some of these folks are. You got to get used to sticks and stones. 
You've got to get used to being called names. You've got to get used to suffering for your beliefs. I wish it were otherwise. But these are the times we live in. And we've got to keep speaking the truth. No matter what. Because there are people out there looking for it. It's for them. That's the ones. <laughs> for, they're the reason why we do what we do. Don't worry about the critics. Critics are just critics. You don't even have to, to dignify what they're saying with a response. Much less, you know, give it to life by trying to justify yourself to them. Don't worry about it. All right, one final note here, and this is uh, this is just a quick one, but I'm I saw the announcement that the Capitol Police will be creating outposts throughout the country, and ostensibly what they're doing here, this isn't like oh we're setting up an occupying army yet, <laughs> but they are definitely setting up um, a surveillance system and setting up the ability to keep track of people, you know, in the event of uh, in the event of extremism. I, I'm trying to remember the exact language that they used, but the idea is the Capitol Police are the ones charged with protecting members of Congress, so they've got to have outposts across the country to protect those members of Congress, the ruling class. And the crazy thing about it is we are witnessing the creation of a massive public surveillance apparatus that will serve as the eyes and ears of the king. Got a great article here from intellectualtakeout.org from Pedro Gonzalez. Let me hit you with a couple of quick excerpts. Pedro Gonzalez says, Armed with a $2 billion war chest, the U.S. Capitol Police announced its plans to open field offices outside Washington for the first time. New imperial outposts are planned in California and Florida, with more to come across the country as Capitol Police intend to monitor Americans from sea to shining sea. Now, as part of this change in mission, new toys are required. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin recently approved a request by Capitol Police for the loan of eight persistent surveillance systems. That's technology originally deployed by troops in Iraq and Afghanistan. I don't know if you remember this, but some of us have been warning for a long time. What empires do to foreigners abroad they eventually do to citizens at home. Now, this system allows for persistent, high-definition, night-vision-capable surveillance of vast geographical regions. Capitol Police officials remain reticent about how and against whom this technology will be used, and luckily for them, as an agency of the legislative branch, they're exempt from the prying eyes of the Freedom of Information Act. Thus, it would seem the immense nature of the new domestic national security apparatus, revitalized by the pretext of the Capitol building riot, is coming into view. Its tendrils sprawl far beyond D.C., bearing not only the muscle of federal agencies, but corporate collaboration as well. These efforts center on policing so-called legitimate, that is, regime-sanctioned narratives, opinions, and behaviors. So in Michigan, for example, Attorney General Dana Nessel's office announced it will begin investigating allegations that people are profiting off of false claims that the November 2020 presidential election was stolen. Under the pretense of combating fraud, this could effectively criminalize fundraising efforts by state residents to secure an independent election audit. Nessel, a former civil rights attorney, takes a bulldozing legal approach. Emails from March leaked to the press show that she wanted restaurant owner Marlena Pavlos Hackney arrested for defying Michigan's lockdown orders before Fox News could interview her. We should have just picked her up, Nessel suggested, after learning Hackney would appear on Tucker Carlson tonight. Police indeed scooped up Pavlos Hackney a week after the segment. 
So in the same way that 1960s partisans forced the FCC to strip a Mississippi television station of its broadcasting license for criticizing civil rights legislation, institutional powers being brought to bear to crush and surveil dissidents. Then, as now, corporations are entering the fray. The FCC recently created an exemption for Amazon so that the company can build and deploy technology to monitor users' movements in the bedroom with a higher degree of resolution and location precision. The device is touchless and terrifying in its implications for the last shred of privacy Americans have. Last month, the Washington Times reported an ADT home security technician was sentenced to slightly more than four years in prison after hacking into customers' video feeds. But voyeuristic freaks are the least concern. Amazon has lumbered insidiously toward collaboration with intelligence agencies for years. In 2013, Amazon Web Services secured a $600 million contract with the Central Intelligence Agency. Today, it supplies computing cloud services to all agencies of the intelligence community with plans for even more growth. So intimately connected to the national security apparatus is Amazon that the company has branded itself the trusted cloud for government. Now, he goes on to talk about the precedent for corporate political surveillance partnerships and uh, talks about Facebook opting for a rather simple approach, just asking users to snitch on family and friends who may be on the way to becoming an extremist. Users who click through the call to action are transported to the website of a support group called Life After Hate, which is committed to helping people leave the violent far right to connect with humanity and lead compassionate lives. So confident are the corporate and political powers that be that they're openly discussing collaborative efforts to dictate what is and is not misinformation in the public and private spheres. And this won't stop with vaccines or the scarecrow of white, white extremism. Xenophon's uh, fictionalized biography of Cyrus the Great contains mention of the eyes and ears of the king, a massive public surveillance system so ubiquitous that it became impossible to escape and incentivize suspicion among neighbors. People grew terrified to speak and act freely, even in private, but they did not call it tyranny. It merely became a fact of life as it has now. Again, this is Pedro Gonzalez from intellectualtakeout.org. I'm sorry, that's kind of a chilling note to end on, and my goal is never to leave you fearful or angry. But I hope you're at least uh, aware, perhaps a bit concerned, and ready to figure out where you stand, because that's important. This is The Brian Hyde Show.